the passage that we read during our scripture reading, John chapter 4, the story of the Samaritan woman is significant on two fronts. First, it is the longest recorded conversation of Jesus with anyone that's not a disciple. This, these passages are a conversation that's lengthy in, 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 in theology and lengthy in, in who Christ is as he speaks to this woman. But it's also significant because in Jesus speaking to this woman, he breaks two social norms. First, he speaks to a woman. If you remember, Nicodemus in chapter 3 comes to Jesus and calls him a rabbi, a teacher. In Jewish custom, speaking to women was something that was viewed as a waste of time, often even talking to your wives. But at its most extreme level, teachers speaking to women and teaching them Torah was viewed as something that kept them away from studying the scripture. So that's the first social norm that Jesus breaks. He speaks to a woman, but the second social norm that he breaks is he speaks to a Samaritan. Now, if you remember in our study in Hosea, we talked about the, the tribes, the kingdom of Israel being divided into two, and there was ten tribes in the north, and these ten tribes get conquered by the Assyrians, and after being conquered, they intermarry with the Gentile nations, and hundreds of years later, the children of those original Jewish people that intermarried become this race, this ethnicity. They become the Samaritans. So a hundred years later, when the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon and these, these Jewish people see as they enter Jerusalem that there is a mixed race. From that moment on, they viewed this group of people as less than, as a half-breed, as someone not truly Jewish. And so Jesus, as a Jewish man, speaking not just to a woman but to a Samaritan, is breaking also this racial tension. Now for us, it's easy to read the story and turn it into an evangelistic one, and there is evangelism in all of this. But friends, in this story, if we're going to compare ourselves to someone, we are not Jesus preaching the gospel to the less fortunate. We're the Samaritan woman, and later we're the disciples. We're the ones who need the fountain of living water. We're the ones who need this bread of life. And so the main emphasis in verses 1 through 42 of John chapter 4 is as follows. We must know and believe that Jesus is the giver of eternal life. And so we'll see this emphasized in verses 1 through 15. Jesus gives eternal life because he's the fountain of living water. Verses 16 through 26, Jesus, as the giver of eternal life, is the object of our worship. And verses 31 through 42, Jesus gives eternal life because he is the Savior of the world. Again, I repeat, the main idea in verses 1 through 42 is we must know and believe that Jesus is the giver of eternal life. So let's begin reading verses 1 through 6. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, 
Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. These first six verses are simply setting up the scenario. They're setting up the story. Now, in verse 1, we learn that Jesus is getting more followers than John. Why? He's baptizing more. Now, verse 2 clarifies that it's not Jesus doing the baptism, but his disciples. But the point is clear here. And this is what John says in other Gospels. He must increase, so, or I must decrease so that he must increase. This is John's message. He knows that Jesus is supposed to get more followers. His ministry is supposed to flourish. And yet, Jesus' ministry is flourishing in Judea. But in verse 3, we find out that Jesus decides to leave to Galilee, the place where he first did a miracle by turning water into wine. And so Jesus leaves not because he's being forced out, not because someone is demanding for him to go, but I believe he leaves for two reasons. Number one, as his ministry increases, we must remember what John has done up to this point. He has baptized a baptism of repentance, preaching repentance. He's told the Pharisees they are brood of vipers who need repentance. So why does Jesus leave? Because as his ministry increases, he doesn't want the Pharisees to go back and tell John, see, you're the false teacher. The real deal is this guy, it's Jesus. So Jesus decides to leave so that John could continue his work of ministry in Judea. But there's another reason why he leaves, and we see this in the text. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. No other option. He had to pass through Samaria. Now this is interesting because physically speaking, he does not have to pass through Samaria. While Samaria is the shortest route from Judea to Galilee, often Jews did not go through Samaria, again, because Jews viewed Samaritans as less than. They were racially inferior. So many Jews took the longer route through the sea, through Jordan, and they would come in through Galilee, through Jordan. It was a longer route, but they would rather do that than go through Samaria. So why does John tell us that Jesus had to go through Samaria? The verb a day here is a divine appointment. Jesus has to go through Samaria because he's got a divine mission to this woman. He's got a gospel to proclaim, as we will see, to this woman and friends. Family, I don't know how you got into our Facebook live stream this morning, but I want to let you know you've not come here to hear a preacher. You've not simply come here to hear a message. You're on a divine appointment with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it could be that this morning he's calling you to believe him to see him. If you've grown cold, he's calling you back to a relationship with him. If you're far from him, you're on a divine appointment this morning, but it's not with me. It's with Jesus. So Jesus goes to this divine appointment and it tells us where in Samaria. It's in Sikar. This is probably an allusion to Genesis 48, 21 
through 22, where Jacob gives Joseph this mountain slope, and the Hebrew word there is Shechem with a K. It's a, it's a play on words with the town Shechem, which is actually where this place is located, where Mount Gerizim, as we'll get to later on in this story, becomes a significant place of worship. So Jesus goes to this town, Sikar, and verse 6 lets us know he's weary. And it's about the sixth hour. We're following the Jewish calendar here. So it's about noonday, about 12 o'clock. And verse 6 lets us know that Jesus is tired to emphasize a theological truth. Jesus is fully God, but he's truly man as well. Truly God and truly man. And so he wearied. He is tired. Let's look at verse 7 and on. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Now I want you to notice here, verse 8 makes it clear that the disciples had gone away. So Jesus is alone with this woman. Not only is he breaking racial tensions by speaking to a woman who's from Samaria, but the disciples are as well. They're buying food from an unclean place. Jews did not eat unclean food. And to buy food from Samaria is something that would be considered unclean. But it speaks of the cost of following Christ. In verse 7, we find out this woman is alone. So not only is it astonishing that Jesus is talking to her, but she's alone. She comes out at noonday. Women from Samaria did not go to the fountain of, of, of well to, to, to draw water at noon. It was too hot. It was, it was not wise. They'd wait 5, 6 o'clock when the sun is going down. But furthermore, they never went alone. This woman's alone. She goes at an hour where she knows no one's going to be there. Why? It's probably because she's a social outcast. She's not just an outcast to the Jews. She's an outcast to her own people. And why, we'll see later on. It's because she has a sinful past. Nevertheless, Jesus asks her for a drink of water, and she's astonished. Now, we know why she's astonished. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. But John says something very interesting in verse 9. He, he gives us an, an aside here. And here's what he says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. He's letting us know that Jews don't deal with Samaritans. Now, what's interesting about here is that really this is a soft translation. We could easily think that this means Jews don't speak to Samaritans, but the reality is, is that this verb, sunkrastai, is actually letting us know that it, the real translation is Jews don't use together with Samaritans. What is Jesus willing to do here? He's willing to drink from her bucket. This is why she's astonished. Not only does she know that there's racial tensions between Jews and Samaritans, but what astonishes her is that Jesus is willing to grab this bucket and drink it. Now, why is this astonishing? Because the moment Jesus does that, under Jewish religious law, he becomes unclean. But friends, that's the point. The point is, God is so holy that when he touches the unholy, the unholy doesn't defile him. The unholy doesn't desecrate him. The unholy doesn't make him unclean. The opposite happens. When Jesus touches unholy things, he makes them holy. 
When God touches unclean lives, he makes them clean. This is the emphasis of verse 9. You want to know what the cure to racial tension is? It's not violence against violence. It's not race against race. It's bringing races together under the only person that can make the ugliness of racial tensions clean, and that's Jesus Christ. That's the banner we stand for. That's the message we proclaim. And John makes it clear. Jesus is willing to drink out of her bucket. Why? Because he makes the unclean clean. He's holy. And friends, he can take unclean lives and make them clean. This is the emphasis of verse 9. Now Jesus' response to this woman is interesting. Jesus' answer heard, I'm reading verse 10 and on. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Now Jesus responds and says, if you knew the gift of God, what is this gift? What is Jesus talking about here? Ephesians 2.8 lets us know what this gift is. It's the gift of salvation. You have been saved through grace, and this is not of your own doing, but it is the gift of God. Friends, what Jesus is offering this woman is not earthly water. It's eternal life. He's saying, I am this fountain of living water. This is the living water, not just that this Samaritan woman needs. It's the living water we all need. It's the gift from God. It's the gift of salvation. Now, verse 11 is a similar pattern. In chapter 3, Nicodemus does not understand what being born again means. And here, this woman is thinking in earthly terms. She simply says, you got no bucket? You can't draw from this well? How are you going to give me living water? And then she asks a very peculiar question in verse 12. Are you greater than Jacob? Do, do, you, do you see? It, it, it's not a question of, of, of expecting an answer. What she's saying is, really? You think you're greater than Jacob, the guy who gave us this well? He himself had to draw water from it. He gave his livestock water. You think you're greater than Jacob? The answer is implying a no, Jesus. You're not greater than Jacob. And look at Jesus' response in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What is this water that Jesus is offering? What is Jesus talking about here? Look at what Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 25 through 27 says, I'll read it to you. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will pour out my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. This is the living water 
that Jesus is offering. Again, it's the gospel. It's the gift of eternal life. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us, and not just leading and guiding us, but causing us to obey the scriptures, to follow his commands. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot follow his commands. Apart from this living water, we cannot be clean. Now here's the question that we have to face this morning. Do we want this living water? Do we want this fountain of life? Look at the words of Jesus. If you drink this water, you will never be thirsty again. Now there's an alternative to this. The scripture lets us know what the alternative is. Jeremiah 2.13. Here's what the word of God says. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hooed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Here are the two options we have this morning. We can continue going to fountains and wells of sin that hold no water, that have holes inside of them, that give temporary gratification, but in the end, they leave us empty, more broken, more hurt, or we can go to the fountain of living water, whereas Jesus says, when we find this fountain, we will never be thirsty. Again, friends, we've got two options. We can either go to these cisterns of sin, or we can go to the fountain of living water. This is important for us, to understand. And verse 15 re-clarifies that still this woman does not get that Jesus is speaking in a spiritual sense. She says, sure, I'll take this water if it means I don't have to work for it. If it means that I don't have to keep coming to this well, show me in a sense where this place is. And it's a reminder again of Nicodemus, and I do want to take this time to compare the two. In this gospel so far, Jesus has really talked to two other characters that are not immediate family or his disciples. One is Nicodemus in chapter 3, and here in chapter 4 is the Samaritan woman. I want you to see the connections here. Nicodemus is named. He's a man. He's well-renowned. He's part of the Sanhedrin, which means he's not just respected, but he's wealthy. This woman is unnamed. She is a social outcast. She is a Samaritan. She has a sinful past. And yet Jesus has an interaction with both where symbolism of water and new life is involved. What's the point that John is trying to show us with these two characters? What is God trying to reveal? The gospel is for the famous, for the wealthy, for the well-respected, for those that are so self-righteous they think they don't need a Savior. But the gospel is also for the unnamed and the poor and for the social outcast and for those who think they are so far away from sin they can't be saved. The gospel is for those who think they don't need a savior and it's for those who think they're so sinful they can't be saved. This is who Jesus is. He's the fountain of living water. And what he's offering is an earthly satisf satisfaction. It is an earthly gratification. It's eternal life. This is the point of verses 1 through 42. We must know and believe that Jesus is eternal life, but he's not just the eternal life as the fountain of living water. Verses 16 through 19 let us know 
that he's also the object of our worship because he's our eternal Savior. So here's what the Bible says. Let's read verse 16 and on. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now it appears in verses 16 and 17 that Jesus is changing the subject. He's asking her about her husband, but in fact, Jesus is showing her a reality. Not only has she misunderstood what it means to be the fountain of living water, but she's also misunderstood what her real need is. Her real need isn't earthly, it's spiritual. And Jesus is helping her see her real need by actually addressing her past. Now in verse 18, we don't know if the five husbands are due to divorce, if they died and therefore she had five husbands. We're not sure, but here's what we do know. Religious thought at this time was that if any woman had been divorced three times, she was considered unclean. She was considered unworthy. So regardless of the reasons for divorce or the reasons why she had been married five times, the reality is that after three, she's considered a social outcast. Further, what's interesting here is that the person she's living with, and this we do know, is not her husband. So she's with a man currently who has not married her. And because Jesus identifies this need in her, this is her real need. He tells her her past, her, her, her past sin and her present sin. And because he does so, verse 19 is interesting. She says, oh, you must be a prophet. Now, what I want you to know is that the Samaritans did not believe in the entire Old Testament. They were Pentateuch-only theologians. They believed only the first five books of the, of the Torah were inspired. Everything else was not inspired. And therefore, when we hear, see here a prophet, we are not to think in these prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Rather, she's just simply saying, Jesus is a glorified teacher. He's a religious man. And so therefore, verse 20, this is where the narrative continues. She goes on to say, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman here is not diverting from this exposure of sin. Rather, because she's upgraded in some sense, Jesus, to not just simply a Jewish man who's willing to drink from her bucket, but rather, here now she sees he's a religious man, and she's trying to show him that she also knows some religious topics. And so in verse 20, she simply says, Jews believe that it's on this mountain. What does she mean here? During this time, the Samaritans were not allowed to go to the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews believed the place of worship was Jerusalem because that's where Solomon's temple was built. 
The Samaritans couldn't go there because, again, they were inferior. They were not considered worthy to go into the temple. And because they were Pentateuch-only theologians, they believed the place of worship was Mount Gerizim, where Abraham first built an altar to the Lord. So we have this divide and theology of location, which is the proper place of worship. And Jesus rebuttals, as we've just read in verses 21 through 22, with three rebuttals. Number one, his emphasis is the place of worship isn't as important as the object of worship. He says, it doesn't matter what mountain, whether it's on this one or on that one, what matters is who we worship. This is Jesus' emphasis. It's not Mount Gerasim. It's not the, 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 the temple in Jerusalem. The idea is, who are we worshiping? Who is the object of our worship? And in our day, we must be careful not to make much of aesthetics of worship and forget about the object of our worship. This is the first rebuttal. It does not matter. What matters is who we worship. Who do we worship this morning? The second rebuttal is, Jesus says, they worship what they do not know. What does he mean here? What he's saying is because the Samaritans were Pentateuch-only theologians, they have not received the full revelation of Scripture. But it's not just them. The Jews were in a similar blind side here. They hadn't fully understood who he is. And so Jesus is emphasizing not only is the place not important, but the object, but he's also emphasizing what we know about the object of worship is more important than the place. And again, we have to ask ourselves, what do we know about the Savior we worship? Many of us look at words on a screen and sing along to them, but we have no idea what they mean. This is a reminder that we must know the God of the Scriptures so that we can adequately worship Him. We must know who we worship. And number three, Jesus says, salvation is from the Jews. It almost sounds like he's saying they are superior, but rather what he means here is not that all Jews will be saved, or further, that the law is what saves. What Jesus is emphasizing in verses 21 through 22 is salvation history begins with the Jews, but ultimately it is not fulfilled by the Jews. God picked Israel as his chosen people, but salvation history does not end there. How do we know this. Look at verse 23. I want to highlight this back to you. But the hour is coming future and now is here, present. The hour is coming future. There is a future fulfillment in this context. It's that Jesus will die and rise from the grave. But he's also saying it's not just future. It's already here. Why? Because Jesus is before her. He is among them. It's not just a future waiting, but it's a current, present reality. And in our, our context, on this side of the cross, while we wait for Jesus to return and take us home, we must remember that Jesus is here now in the present, working in our lives and giving us eternal life, calling us to repentance. This is a future call and a present. And in this context, what Jesus is emphasizing is that while salvation history may begin with the Jews, it is not fulfilled with the Jews. He is the ultimate fulfillment. Worship must be understood that we do not worship the law. 
We are not bound by the law. Our object of worship is not the law of Moses. It is the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And my prayer this morning is that He would be your Savior so that you can worship Him as Savior. Look at verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now it's interesting that she uses the term Messiah because again, Samaritans don't have this understanding that the Jews did of a Messiah. They actually called him Taheb. They believed in some sort of Redeemer, but not Messiah in the fullest sense. Most likely she uses the phrase Messiah because she's speaking to a Jew. But here's the important part. Jesus says to her, I'm him. I am the Messiah. I am the one who comes to save. I am the promised Messiah. This is important because it highlights why Jesus is the object of our worship. Because he's the giver of life. He's the giver not just of this life, but he's the giver of eternal life. And again, it brings us back to the main point. Do we know and believe that Jesus gives eternal life? He gives it because he's the fountain of living water. And he gives it. And that's why, because he gives it, he ought to be the object of our worship. He ought to be the reason why we sing, and not just why we sing, but why we live lives of worship. But there's one more emphasis here. Verses 27 through 42, we must also know and believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. As the giver of eternal life, he comes to save the world. Verse 27, I'll read from verse 27. And on, as Jesus has revealed to this Samaritan woman who he is, he, the, the, the story takes a pause here and shifts to the disciples. Look what verse 27 says. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? In verse 27, again, we see the, the puzzlement. Jesus has spoken to a Samaritan woman, and again, the disciples being from Jewish descent are puzzled. They, they see this, and they're like, okay, this isn't supposed to happen, but they're too afraid to ask why Jesus spoke to this woman. In verse 28, something interesting happens. The woman leaves her jar behind. She goes back into town. Now, I don't want to make much of this because we do not know if she comes back to get in her bucket and goes back home. What we do know, however, is that this is in some sense a picture of the gospel. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes into our lives, the old has passed away and the new has come. There is a leaving behind of the old life and we enter into a new life. That is the effect of the gospel. Our lives become transformed. Our affections towards sin are changed and we get a new heart, a new desire, new affections to follow and serve Jesus Christ. Not this world, 
but Jesus Christ. And look at, not only is there an effect and a change of heart in the gospel, but there is an effect in that we quickly become evangelists. We want others to know the gospel. We want others to see this Savior. And this is her gospel cry. Come see a man. I'm going to say it again. Come see a man. That's her gospel, gospel cry. And guess what, friends? It's ours as well. When we go out, we're saying to the world, come see a man. It's not come look at our church. It's not come look at our creativity. Come look at our, at our drama club. Come look at the ministries we offer and whatever else we can offer as an institution. It's not look at how many people we feed and how many houses we build. It's not even come see a preacher. No, it's come see a man. And this man is Jesus Christ. That is the gospel call. When we evangelize, this is an effect of salvation, and we're not preaching ourselves. We're preaching Christ, and Christ crucified, and Christ raised from the dead. She goes into town, but she says, I've got a story to tell you, and it's a story about a man. And then she asks the question in verse 29, could this be the Christ? Now notice, it began with, you ain't greater than Jacob, to, hmm, you might be a nice religious teacher, but now the real question, could he really be the Messiah? Now, she hasn't landed on the answer yet, but she's pondering it. Now it's become a reality. This might be the Messiah. Friends, it's not enough for us to see Jesus as a religious teacher. It's not even enough for us to see him as greater than Jacob and Abraham. We must see him as who he truly is as the giver of eternal life, as the fountain of living water, as the object of our worship, we must see him as Lord and Savior of our lives. In verse 30, we learn that the crowd gathers because of what the woman told them, and they're coming to Jesus. And as they're coming to Jesus, a conversation between Jesus and his disciples take place. So here's the crowd coming from Samaria with this woman, and verse 31 says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Remember, they went to Samaria to get food for Jesus. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. In verses 31 through 34, the disciples bring food to Jesus. And Jesus says, I have food that you do not know about. And again, like the Samaritan woman, like Nicodemus, the disciples do not fully understand that Jesus is talking about spiritual life. He has a food. What is this food? What is this food that he's talking about in verse 34? My food is to do the will of my Father. It is a perfect fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Here's what Deuteronomy 8, 3 says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth 
of God. Now, if you study the Old Testament, you'll come quickly to realize that, Israel, that the Israelites, the people of God, never fulfilled this command. They never lived by God's word alone. In fact, they ate from other places. They ate from other wells, from other tables. They, they, they ate from idols and from other nations and from what other cultures were doing. Yet, Jesus here says, I came to do, my food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the bread of life because he does the will of the Father. He is the bread of life that gives us eternal life. And if we just read verses 35 through 38, highlight an important truth. The woman had gone out to testify. And Jesus tells his disciples in verse 35, look and see. The, the point that he's trying to make is that as they lift up their eyes and see, they're seeing this crowd of Samaritans coming. See, the Jews thought that the right time to evangelize, the, the proper time to be religious was four months later, most likely when Passover was to be celebrated. This is when we ought to really show our light. But Jesus is saying, no, the time for evangelism is always in the now. The spiritual time of harvest is always in the present tense. It's always in the now. Now is the time to evangelize. So you can understand this better. We don't have to wait till Christmas to evangelize. We don't have to wait till the country gets better to evangelize. We don't have to wait for a pandemic to be over to evangelize. Now is the time to evangelize. Now is the time to preach the gospel. The, the proclamation of come see a man, of come see Jesus is always in the now. And verse 38 makes this clear in context. It refers to the prophets of old. What Jesus is saying is that others have paved the way. Others have paved this road way before we were ever here. And so in this context, it's the prophets paved the way for John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, as the last of the prophets, as Jesus called them, paid the way or, or prepared uh, the way for Jesus' ministry. And friends, we stand here today because others before us have paved the way. Others have died and suffered for the cause of the gospel. And our turn is to continue to pave the way for future generations. But this is the emphasis. No human or ministry can claim the fruit of gospel proclamation. There are others who have sowed before us and rather it, whether it be us who reap or someone else, the emphasis is clear here. The sower and the reaper rejoice together. Others have paved the way. And so this is Jesus' emphasis to his disciples and it's an emphasis to us. Now is the time to proclaim the gospel. And the narrative shifts right back to verse 39, to the woman who proclaimed the gospel. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Verse 39 is an emphasis that our testimony is good, but it ain't good enough. 
Now, initially, in verse 39, this woman tells her testimony. Part of her gospel proclamation was, look at what Christ has done in me. There is a gospel proclamation here as far as look at what Christ has done in her. And many of us do this. My marriage was this way and then Christ entered it. My relationship with my children were this way and then Christ entered it. I was an alcoholic. I was addicted to drugs. God delivered me from all these things. And there are testimonies after testimonies after testimonies. And while that was intriguing, it is not the means of salvation. Verse 42 makes this clear. They go to Jesus and Jesus spends two days with them and he's teaching them and he's proclaiming the gospel to them. And they said to the woman, this is the final thing here, it's the Samaritans, the people evangelized by this woman. They look to her and they say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is a clear reminder that someone else's testimony cannot get us into heaven. I'm not a Christian because my mom is a Christian. If you're a young person listening, you're not a Christian simply because mom and dad bring you to church. We're not Christians simply because our parents were Christians. We must know and believe, and this must be true in our lives we must listen to the words of Jesus. We must listen with our ears in this story and see that Jesus is the giver of eternal life, but not simply listen. We must know and believe it for ourselves. Friends, do we believe this? Do we know this? Do we believe that Jesus is the giver of eternal life? And this is the final phrase. It, it echoes the theme of this gospel. The gospel is written so that we may believe that he gives eternal life. And this echoes this idea with this final phrase. He is the savior of the world. The world. Jesus saves the world. Not the entire world, but rather the idea here is that he saves all types of people in this world. This isn't universal salvation. It simply means that salvation discriminates no one. Hebrews chapter 9. I want to read this to you. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 through 20. It's a, it's a recall to the day of atonement. And here's what the author of Hebrews says. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all people... He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in that same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I read this because I want to remind you that in the Day of Atonement, the blood of the goat was spilled to sanctify the tabernacle. And they didn't just sanctify the tabernacle, the whole system, the whole religious system needed to be sanctified. So the Book of the Covenant was sanctified. 
The, the altar was sanctified. The utensils used to move the tabernacle were sanctified. The, the food or the utensils used to eat, the, the offerings were sacrificed. All these things were sacrificed. The nation of Israel was, was cleansed, was purified. But John says here, he's the savior of the world. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But in our context, it means something very different. Jesus isn't coming to sanctify utensils and places of worship. He sheds his blood to cleanse and sanctify hearts that are unclean. He comes to shed his blood and sanctify sinners. And not just any type of sinner, but all sinners. He sanctifies the world whether you're rich or poor, he cleanses you. Whether you live in nice, beautiful suburbs or in inner city, low-income families, he comes to sanctify. This is what Jesus does. He comes to sanctify unclean hearts and make them clean. Whether you're oppressed or oppressor, salvation is for both of you. It's for the victim and the one who oppresses. Jesus comes to sanctify white and black and Asian and Hispanic. He comes to sanctify the world. And this is what this passage is teaching us, friends. Do we know him as the fountain of living water? As the Savior of our world, do we worship Him as Savior? And He is the one who gives eternal life because He saves the world. John chapter 4, 1 through 42 echoes one idea. We must know and believe that Jesus is the giver of eternal life. So my invitation to you is come and drink from this eternal life. Let us sing together. Amen.